I think that the most amazing reality in all of the universe is this. And it's simple. It's that God loves us. And we know that he loves us because he's revealed himself to us and he has not left us to wonder, right? He's not left us wondering about who he is or if he exists. And most importantly, he's revealed the ultimate truth to us. He's given us this book, the Bible, so that we can know who he is, what his and our purposes are, and ultimately how we can know him and be a part of his family. And there are so many people in the world right now who would reject that truth, right? They would say that there's no truth and that we can't know the ultimate truth and whatever your personal experiences are and however you interpret them can be your truth, even if it contradicts someone else's truth and you can both be right. But you and I know that that's false. So we as Christians claim, what we claim as the truth is based on the word of God, right? And it says his loving revelation to us, and we know that God loves us. We know that his plan for us is good and to know him and to follow him. And that's where we are in Romans chapter eight this morning, verses one through 11. And if you're paying attention, we're jumping ahead a whole chapter, Les gave me permission to jump ahead to Romans 8, probably because I'm selfish and it's really easy. It's just a great passage. It's my favorite passage. And he probably wasn't gonna ask me to preach again in a couple weeks. So I was like, can I do Romans 8? And he was like, yeah, sure. So Les, Les is really nice. He doesn't say no if you ask him in a nice way. So, um, uh, But this is, this is one of my absolute favorite passages in all of scripture. And there's a lot here for us this morning. And so for the sake of time this morning, we're gonna focus on the main thing in this passage. We're gonna focus on the foundation and the cornerstone of our faith. And that is just the simple, the simplicity of the gospel. Because there's so much truth here we could spend so much time. In fact, I think Les and John both joked, but I don't think they were joking that they were gonna both preach on this passage too. So you might get more of this in the next couple of weeks. Uh, let's, but this morning, let's just let the gospel be the gospel this morning. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it and then um, I'll pray, and then we'll do it again. So Romans chapter eight. I'm gonna be in the ESV. I hope that's okay with you. It'll be on the screen if you've got one of the weaker translations. Uh, so Romans chapter eight. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Drop the mic, we're done, let's go home. Amen. Amen. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For to set, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your, your word is great and it is true. As Paul says in 2 Timothy, your word is God-breathed. Lord, that your very breath is in the scripture we just read. And it is an intimate revelation to your people about who you are and what you have for us. So we pray today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will, will move and work amongst us, that you would convict us where we need convicting, that you would rebuke us where we need rebuking and that you would teach us what we need to be taught. We just ask that Lord, and we thank you for the truth in your word today. I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, today, that these words would be yours and not mine. And I too pray against the work of the enemy in this place today, Lord, for you are here and you are great and loving and good and kind. And we are your your children. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. All right, so I'm going to get a little personal this morning, not to make it about me, but I want to share a little bit about how Jesus worked in my life through uh, a difficult season, spiritually speaking, for me, because this particular passage uh, spoke truth into my life. And that's the thing about the Bible, isn't it, right? God has given it to speak into our lives. And so many people in the world want to impose their truth and their experience onto the Bible, but that's not how God wants us to use or to read his word. We should, when we read the Bible, take into account its original context and meaning to those to who it was written. And instead of viewing the scripture through the lenses of our experiences and our ideas, we should interpret our lives through the lens of God's word. And anyway, the season of my life that I was in, um, and I think that in one way or another, many, if not all of us as believers are gonna go through it. And so, so I wanna share with you this struggle that I had fought throughout my teen years and into my early 20s. And, and your situation, um, the way you go through it's probably gonna be a little bit different than me uh, because we all have different 
and backgrounds and experiences and where we come from, right? But many of us are gonna go through some version of this type of what I'll call a spiritual storm. And maybe it took me so long to go through it because I'm pretty stubborn sometimes. Um, Ask my wife. But you wouldn't have known it was something that I was struggling with had you known me. It wasn't something necessarily that I wanted people to know about or that I wanted to talk about. But what I struggled with was the assurance of my faith. And, and most of this struggle with wondering whether or not if I was really saved, whether or not I was really God's child, was that no matter how much I wanted to please God, right, no matter how much I wanted to follow Jesus and glorify him with my life, it seemed like I just kept falling into these rebellious seasons of sin in my life. And it was the shame and the guilt from these seasons that caused me to scream in my heart out to God like Paul in chapter seven. He says, if I keep doing these things, I can't help doing these things. How can you love me? How can I be your child when I don't deserve it? When I'm so unworthy of your love? Because it didn't matter how many Bible verses I memorized or how many songs I sang in church or how many sermons I listened to. I felt like I was powerless to change myself. And I felt alone and unable to change this spiritual despair that I was in. And the truth was, and still is, that I'm powerless to do those things. Now, I know we skipped ahead to chapter eight, but we need to know a little bit of the context of what Paul says before in chapter seven. And Les is gonna spend several weeks unpacking all of it and breaking it down. But in chapter seven, Paul is describing the spiritual night of his soul, right? He's struggling and in the despair and the darkness, he cries out, the good that I want to do, I do not do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? That's despair, right? That's darkness, But exploding out of that darkness, Romans chapter seven, is the first two verses of Romans eight where God says through Paul, the answer to that darkness. And it's the message of God's redeeming and empowering grace given to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, I think most of you probably know that I grew up a pastor's kid. Um, If you don't, you do now. Um, And just being with all you, when I was growing up, I kind of hated being a pastor's kid. Uh, I hated it and I I resented it. And I'm I'm not saying it was my dad's fault or my mom's fault. I had great parents. I have to say that because they're here today. Um, but I didn't know, but I did, I, did have, I, have, I did have, and I do have uh, really amazing, wonderful parents. Uh, the, one of the biggest earthly blessings, the biggest earthly blessing, one of them, my parents, just godly parents. It's not their fault. And I don't think it was my church's fault. I honestly don't know what it was, but I just didn't like being a pastor's kid. And I'm not saying that my parents or anyone at church ever intentionally put a weight on me because I was the pastor's kid. I know this sounds like a sob story. Oh, 
whatever. I didn't have a rough childhood, okay? So I'm not, I'm not up here thinking I, I'm, I was abused. Um, I'm, just, I'm just telling you. But for some reason that I've never really understood, I felt like a weight and a pressure on me growing up because I was a pastor's kid. Like I at least had to appear that I had it all together, right? And I mean, even to this day, I struggle with feeling like I always have to have all the answers. You know, I mean, I clearly don't, but somebody asks me a question, I'm like terrified if I'm not gonna have the answer to it right away. And part of that, that burden that I probably put on myself is what kept me from sharing my doubts and of my assurance of my faith with anyone for so long. Because if I was, if I was doubting my faith, and I was sharing that with people, well, then I didn't have it all together, right? And in concert with that, while I was, while I was growing up all the way through elementary school, as far back as I can remember, um, I remember all my teachers and a lot of my coaches and my parents, and everyone felt like they were telling me how much potential I had. And I definitely don't say that to brag or anything like that because I never really thought I had that much potential or whatever. But in fact, like it always seemed like that term, like the term potential was like so vague, you know, like you have potential. It's like, great. What the heck does that mean? You know, but, but many of the adults in my life would always tell me how much potential I had. And yet they'd say it in a way that I could tell that I wasn't living up to their expectations. I wasn't living up to what they thought my potential was. And so I was not living up to their expectations. Maybe that's because I, I tended to be a procrastinator in school or uh, whatever, lots of things. But, but in any way, I, I let that put additional weight on me because I felt that I was failing because I didn't have it all together. And I had to keep an appearance of keeping it all together. And then I had this weight of then trying to keep it all together that I wasn't meeting people's expectations of me. So in my teen years, this weight was really pressing on me. And when I got out of high school, I was fighting this internal battle in my mind of never feeling good enough. And I often didn't, uh, there's a typo in here and I have no clue what I was trying to say, but. Uh, I had my dad proofread this too. So. Um, I got out of high school and I was fighting this internal battle in my mind, right, of never feeling good enough. And, and I often didn't, you know, didn't feel good enough for like my parents, for my family, for my teachers. And I even felt I wasn't like good enough for the church. And so if I wasn't good enough for those things, then I certainly wasn't good enough for God. Right, so how, so how could he love me? Right? So instead of pressing into God and, and my doubts and really understanding the application of what Christ had done for me, right, knowing I couldn't do it on my own, I ran the other way. I ran into the arms of the world. I chased fun. I chased a record deal with my band. We partied a lot. I chased girls. I chased worldly things because I was looking for something to make me feel worthy. Some way out. I was looking for anything to make me feel worthy and successful in just some way. But all of those things, right, they just led to more shame and more guilt. And my mindset towards God at that time was just like Paul's words in Romans 7. God, I am so wretched. I do these things I don't want to do. I keep sinning. I keep walking away. I don't deserve you. 
How could you love me? Now, I shared that with you, not for like your pity or for you to feel sorry for me, but just, you know, as an illustration. And to remind you that each and every one of us can feel this way when serious sin overtakes our lives. And the reality is that all sin is serious and all of us have been overcome by it. And we can recognize these, what I would call spiritual storms of conscience in our lives. And if we don't, then we aren't paying very much attention to our lives. Because it's, it's the brokenhearted. It's the weak ones who begin to cry out to God, I'm no good. I'm so weak. I can't possibly be God's child if these things are true about me. If these things characterize my life. And this is really the storm of self-condemnation. And it's against this storm that we are to throw this promise from God. Look at it again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is very careful at choosing his words. They're so carefully chosen. Notice that they don't say that there is no sin. They don't say that there's nothing to be concerned about. It's just a little thing. Don't worry about it. It doesn't say that. It's much more deep than that because of the way in which our condemnation is lifted off of us. Look at verse two again. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. He says previously in verses 10 and 11 of chapter seven, he says, I found that the very commandment that promised life actually proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So even the apostle Paul says that when I recognize here all that God has given me in terms of the requirements for my life so that I might live within him, I cannot do them. I can't do them. I can't do it. There's just way too much for me. And so the very things that are meant to give me life and joy becomes death to me because I can't live up to the requirements that are placed on me because I'm broken, right? I'm broken by sin's nature in my body. And the relationship meant to live with God, it's gone. That's what this means. But Paul says God took care of it in another way. Look at verses three and four. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That God would put my sin and your sin and all of our failures on his own son that we might be free to live without the penalty and the guilt of sin. It's the very message of the gospel, is it not? And it's the reason that Paul says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
Not trusting their obedience and their own goodness, but trusting his. My preaching and teaching professor, Dr. Brian Chappell, says this about the gospel. He says, this is a different message than the one that our culture would say. Scripture points to our sin, and the Bible says condemns it. But in the condemnation of it, says at the same time, there is grace greater than it. My sin and your sin require the sacrifice of the Son of God. This is not something small. This is something great. When we come to those points in our lives and we begin to see the weight of our sin and how awful it really is, like when we, when we fall to our knees and we cry out to God, how wretched am I? What have I done? It's awful. The scripture looks us straight in the eyes and it says, you're right. It really was awful. It is terrible what you've done. It required the death and the sacrifice of God's own son. But as provoking and startling and uncomfortable and unpopular as that message might be, more startling is the following. But because of what he did, there is therefore now, right now, no condemnation. Despite the awfulness and despite the terribleness of what you've done and what you are doing and what you will do, there is no condemnation to those who put their faith in what Christ has done for them on the cross. That's what changes people. That is what changes us. When we, stop that, when we stop acting like our sin isn't a big deal, which deep down we all, we all know it's true. We all know that our sin is horrible. We all know it's ugly. We spend so much time trying to cover it up and we walk around like we're perfect, like we have it all together. But when we start taking it seriously and we take it for all the awfulness that it really is and we admit it, but we say that the grace of God is greater. I really think that so many of us walk around not really believing the gospel. We stumble and we fall and we continue to fall short of the life in the Holy Spirit that we know God is calling us to. And so we feel that because we fall short, we can't really be his. But this is a lie from Satan himself. Scripture calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. He is the accuser of believers. You know, I, I read a book a while back. I can't remember what book it was. Uh, but it basically said that Satan's number one goal is to get the believer to doubt their salvation and to get the unbeliever to think that they're saved. How true is that? And so it's not only a lie from Satan, it's also a lie from our own flesh. Some of us literally walk around with the attitude that says, you know, if he would have known that I was going to believe and that I was going to follow him, he probably wouldn't have gone to the cross. You know, it's almost like we have this idea that Jesus is up in heaven and on the day that we got saved, he goes to the father and he goes, whoa, 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 dude, hold on. Father, hold up a second. Look, if I'd have known you were going to save that guy, I would have rethought this whole going to the cross thing. 
I mean, we don't say it like that and we don't actually think that, but some of us live our lives like that. When we doubt who we are in Christ, that's what we're saying. But earlier in Romans, Paul says this in chapter five, and I got to preach on this a few weeks back. Paul says, at just the right time, check that out. At just the right time, the perfect time in human history, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, but for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus, Jesus knows and he has always known the worst about you and the worst about me. He knows the darkest thoughts that we have inside of our minds. He knows the worst things that you and I have ever done or ever will do. He knows about all the times we've wished harm on others in our hearts. He knows about all the lustful desires we have deep down. He knows all the deep and dark places that we've deceived ourselves into thinking we've kept hidden. And he's still at the right time. He went to the cross for us. He still longs for us to come to him and put our faith in him because only in him is there no condemnation. You see, there is a forgiveness and a lifting of the weight, a passing of the spiritual storm of condemnation when we come to the place in our lives that we see that God's grace is much greater than our own failures. When we see that our constant exhaustion in striving to perform and to be perfect, our striving to reach God or to reach the approval of man and to live up to some false spiritual potential, our rest can only be found in Jesus Christ. And this is what has to happen for me and for you, that we turn from ourselves and we recognize that if we are trying to live for God or anyone else's approval, we will never ever be good enough. It's only when we are in Christ, when we trust what he has done on our behalf. Now, I'm gonna take a drink first. <laughs> now, now, some of you here today have, have lived in secret places for too long. You've lived in a darkness that no one but God himself knows about. And right, you, you know who you are. I don't know who you are, um, but you do and the Holy Spirit does. And, and you need to hear this today. You need to listen to this truth. You need to, to listen to it and believe what he has done for you on your behalf so that you would know that you can come to him and be free of the guilt and the shame and the weight of your sin and the pressures of life, all because of his work on your behalf. Is it like his work, listen to his, his work on the cross, it's greater than all your sin. And it's not just greater than your sin. It's greater than 
all the sin of all of mankind. That's how great his work is upon the cross. And he welcomes me and you into repentance to come and lay it down before him. Not saying that our sin is nothing, not belittling it, but taking all of our sin with all of the weight and all of the magnitude of the guilt and the shame that it brings, but bringing it to the cross of Jesus and laying it down. Let me stress this point. We cannot belittle our sin, okay? Turn, if you would, with me to John chapter three real quickly. In John chapter three, a teacher of the law, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Many of you know this story. He's a member of the Jewish council. He comes to Jesus at night and he comes to talk to Jesus and he says, hey, look, Jesus, look, obviously we can tell that, that you're from God because nobody can do the things that you're doing unless they're sent by God. And Jesus just like changes the subject of the conversation to how to inherit eternal life. And in verse five, he says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the spirit. And what Jesus is saying is you have to be born again, right? You can't come to God. You can't get into heaven without being born again. And Nicodemus doesn't get it, right? He's thinking in physical earthly terms. And he says, I, I, how can I be born again? I can't just like crawl back up into my mother's womb and be born again. And Jesus says, no, 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 right? Like you're Israel's teacher and you don't, like you don't understand what I'm telling you. And he says in verse 12, he says, if I've spoken to you in earthly things and you do not believe, how then will you believe if I speak in heavenly things? And catch this, he says, no one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. That is, no one's gone to heaven but Jesus because he's the only one good enough to get in, right? And he says this, he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Well, that's weird. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the desert. Now, now we have to go look that up, right? So it's in Numbers 21. So let's go to Numbers 21. Okay, Numbers 21, verses four through nine. Jesus is referring back to this story in Numbers 21. It's the story of the bronze snake. I'm gonna read it real quickly um, for time's sake. But it says, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the people became impatient on the way. Sounds like me with my kids on a road trip. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That's a weird story. Just in and of itself. 
by itself, right? It's, it's weird. But when we look at it in the greater context of Scripture and the redeeming story of Jesus Christ, and we, what we see is that what Jesus is saying in John 3 is that if you want to get into heaven, what you need to do, just like the snake, just like the way that God provided salvation for the people of Israel in this circumstance, was that they'd be forced to look upon their sin. Because what they did was they lied, right? They lied, they cried out lies against God because what God had done was deliver them out of slavery from Egypt and freed them. And he was going to give them a land of promise. And they were in the desert and they cried out, why did you bring us out here just to die? And by the way, your food sucks. And so God sends a serpent. And what does the serpent represent, right? We know back to Genesis chapter three, the serpent represents lies. The serpent came and lied to man. And so they're lying about the good things that God has done for them. So God sends a representation of their sin to come in and punish them for their sin. And they come and they are, they're convicted. They're convicted. And they say, yes, we have sinned. Right, catch that. They say, it's so important. They get that they've sinned. They got the message and God provided a way of salvation for them because he always provides a way of salvation for us. But his way of salvation then was a snake. It was a symbol of their sin held up on a pole. So to be saved, they had to recognize their sin and they had to look upon their sin. That was how they became saved. And Jesus is saying, just like Moses lifted up their sin to save them in the desert, so you too, if you want to get into heaven, you have to recognize your sin, that your sin is a big deal. And I'm gonna take all of that sin, as big as it is, I'm gonna bear it on the cross, Jesus says. And I'm the only way to get into heaven because I'm the only one who can get into heaven. So you must look upon me beaten and bloodied and murdered for your sin, you must look at me to get into heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. And that there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he bore all of our sin on the cross. His last words were, it is finished. It is paid in full. This is the message that still the storm of self-condemnation. And again, Paul goes on to address the storm in verse five, where he lays out this battle between evil and the good that God does. If you go back to Romans chapter eight, almost done, okay? I promise. In verse five, he says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the of the spirit. What Paul is saying here is that if, if the spirit of God is in you, you are different from the world. You may not have corrected everything in your life, but your mind desires what the spirit desires. More than that, those who are controlled by this world's spirit are actually under the control of the world. And that's the summary in verse eight. He says, those who are in the flesh 
cannot please God. But Paul's not talking about me and he's not talking about you if we are in Christ Jesus. Look at verses nine through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Catch that. He will give life to your mortal bodies. That is our current state right now. There is life and there is strength in Christ. Not just released from the guilt and shame of sin, but from the power of sin through the work of Jesus Christ. And what our heavenly father promises us is not that we won't have to struggle and fight with sin, but that the spirit of the living God is inside of us. And with that kind of resource and power, the very God who created the universe and everything in it by his spirit is working to recreate us. As Paul puts it in the, Colossians, in the book of Colossians, we are being renewed in the image of our creator. That is the Holy Spirit is working in our lives so that no matter what we struggle with, no matter what we go through, if we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in us, actively working. And he's making us like Jesus Christ. If that isn't good news, if that doesn't do something to you, if that doesn't grab your heart, I mean, we all need to be made new. Look at our culture. You can't watch five minutes of TV or scroll through social media without someone telling you what's wrong with you and how they have this perfect product that will save you for a startup fee and a monthly subscription. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up as I wrap up. But let me, let me tell you something. The only thing that really can make you new a new and better you is the spirit of God active and at work in your life. With the Holy Spirit in you, working in you, you do not have to be tomorrow or next week what you are today. Change is really possible. It is possible. We don't have to listen to the lies of our culture and the devil that says it's always going to be this well, be this way. I just can't help it. We don't have to listen to those lies. Listen, there is, there is tremendous power. And I mean, the whole reason we come to this place every Sunday, 52 weeks a year, is to recognize and remember what God has done for us by his grace. We gather as the people of God to give thanks, to worship him, to sing songs of praise, to build up and encourage one another, to be changed by his word, and to be reminded every week because we need to be reminded every week who our lives are centered around. And to remind one another and proclaim to a world that so desperately needs hope that there is no condemnation for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Um, I want to offer an opportunity for you this morning. Like I said earlier, I, I believe that there may be people in this room who've been living in secret places for way too long. And whether it be a, a secret sin you can't stop or a doubt you can't shake or just you can't believe that God would love you. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to just lay that down to lay it down at the feet of Jesus this morning. And, and not that I'm offering it, but the Holy Spirit of God is offering you life in Christ this morning. The Holy Spirit is offering you true freedom today. The chance to, to come to the place where you say, I'm laying it down, Jesus. I'm laying it all at your feet, all my striving, all my trying, all my working, all my sin, all my shame, all my doubt. And I choose to trust in what you've done for me on the cross. So I just want to be quiet for a moment. And I'll let you listen to the Spirit speak to you this morning for just a few moments. before I pray this morning, if you, maybe you've never decided to follow Jesus with your life before. Maybe you've never decided to give your life to him. If you would like to choose to follow Jesus today, or if, or if you just need encouragement or prayer for something this morning, man, we would just love to come alongside you and, and pray for you this morning. So I'll let you know that there are uh, a few men and women. Oh, there's going to be a few men and women up here. Um, at the front to pray with you this morning. Um, but also, I'd like to give you an opportunity right now. That every, if you're, everybody's eyes are closed right now, except for you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, everybody's eyes are closed right now. If you'd like someone to come pray with you where you're at, if you would just raise your hand, somebody will come find you and pray with you. You can do that right now. Um, but also, if you want to want to come forward for prayer, we've got some people for, up here to pray with you. We would just love to pray with you this morning as we sing um, and to encourage you. So let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word today. We thank you that your love, that your grace and your mercy are upon us as your people. We thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ this morning. Lord, we come to you today just laying down our sin, laying down our griefs and all of our burdens before you, fully knowing, fully knowing that you, you already know what they are. And Lord, we are grateful that we do not have to keep an appearance of perfection before you. And we can lay our burdens down and we can run into your presence and find rest because we are clothed Christ. Lord, I believe that some of us here today are spiritually exhausted, worn out, 
Our souls are tired of running from you and hiding from you and feeling like we have to clean ourselves up before we can come to you. It's just something we can't do, Lord. We can't do that. Don't let us believe that lie anymore. So may we run to you and and accept the cleansing that Jesus shed blood and broken body provide to us, Lord, this morning. We love you. We praise you. It's in your great name that we pray this morning. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing.